welcome to the Place of Us podcast. I'm Landell Archer, sales director and podcast host. This interview is a little bit different. Kevin Brownell is a smart building consultant with PTS in London. And if it weren't for COVID-19, we'd probably have met in person by now and completed a project together. Um, I, I took a really different approach on this one. It's a bit of our recommendations on what to read and what to listen to if you're interested in smart buildings, in workplace technology trends, or just tech in general. Um, we also talk a lot about wellness in the current climate. So I hope you enjoy. Kevin Brownell is a smart building consultant, but he's broken that into an acronym. SMART, simply making a real transformation. Now, Kevin and I both talk to a lot of people. We're both podcast hosts and both voracious readers and listeners. So I thought a great way to get into this particular podcast was to ask a few questions that we can both answer and discuss. And hopefully the audience can pick up on a few things about you know what to read, what to listen to. Um, and, and we might even get some discussion points about um, you know, what we talk about from people with their own opinions. So let's jump in, Kevin. What are you currently reading? So I think there's a, I got a bit of an eclectic mix of reading. So from a business perspective, I'm currently reading a book called Inside the Nudge Unit. Have you heard about it? No, I haven't. It's by David Halpern. It's a really interesting kind of subtle way of changing people's behavior um, there's a, there's a, this is um, David Cameron government in the UK deployed this this unit to try and improve um, certain aspects of, uh, of, of British behaviour at the time. So, for example, they put a note on a tax return to say that something like uh, so many percentage of people paid their tax on time. And that little line on a tax return increased the tax yeah. revenues on time by so many percentage. It was like a massive change. And it's like that subtle kind of messaging around how do you change behavior by subtle little bits and pieces. So that it's a really interesting book. If you haven't read it, I'd advise it. And so Inside the Nudge Unit, David Halpern, really interesting. How about you? What are you reading? Oh, I've heard about that. I, I actually, someone told me about that stat, which was really cool. I just didn't know it came from that book. Um, I Work-wise, I'm reading The Employee Experience Advantage by Jacob Morgan. And he is actually articulating everything I experience when I talk to customers. So they aren't sure how to set the employee experience that they want and they're not sure how to kind of bring that to life. Um, and I really like how he talks about employee experience. He, I don't know. Have you read this one? I should probably ask that. I haven't read it, but I'm, I'm about to dive in. Yeah. So he goes about explaining that, employee experience he's done the research i think it's like 200 organizations 142 ceos or something like that that he interviewed and um he found that the organizations who actually focus on employee experience have 4.2 times the profit of organizations that don't focus on employee experience and then he goes on to say that employee experience is like 40% cultural environment, 30% technology, and 30% physical environment. Wow. And it was so, it was such a, um aha moment that I was like, okay, these, just the nature of how people build buildings, they spend so much time on the physical environment and technology is often an afterthought. But as far as the employee experience goes, 30% of the physical environment, 30% is contributed by technology. So they are equal, yet so much more um, effort, user experience journeys, like furniture choices, all of that goes into the physical environment. And technology is often this afterthought that they throw in at the end. Um, and then I thought it was really interesting, like the the weight of cultural environment as well. So yeah. Um, yeah, like it, it's a really interesting book. Um, what about podcasts? What's a great podcast that you've listened to recently? Well, I'm a bit of a space nerd, so I'm kind of tuned into the whole NASA thing. So it's, it, is, it yep. is technology related because like 40, 50 years ago, it's just incredible to me that we put a man on the moon within this period of nine years and never been in space before that. Um, we yeah. as in the Royal We as in the, <laughs> including myself in that. So it's a, there's a podcast from the BBC World Service called 13 Minutes to the Moon. Um, and it is related to the technology. It tells in that really granular detail how we how we did that. We 
did that to get a man on the moon um, in the last 13 minutes of that Apollo 11 landing. And if you're if you're a techie, you'll you, I think you'll love this podcast because it's it's just incredible. Um, it, it's the, probably the best podcast I've ever listened to. Maybe because I love the space stuff, but from a technology achievement point of view, it, it's probably the leading light. It's incredible. No, it's a it's a really good listen if you're if you're into space and that kind of stuff. But if you're not, hopefully you'll find it fascinating. Lots of kind of oral history inserts from NASA and the people involved. So fantastic bit of history too. Yeah, that's cool. How about you? Oh, Apart from your podcast with Paul Landell. <laughs> yes, I really liked your email. You know when the, the the your email comes through and you just see kind of the start of the email and your name popped up and then you said. I have to say, I don't, I didn't like your podcast and I was, you know, deflated and then I thought <laughs> I'll open this because Kevin will have some really constructive feedback. And then I opened the email and it said, I didn't like your podcast. I loved it. Yeah. Sorry for that bit of fun, but it, uh, I, yeah, I was in a flippant mood, but um, yeah, fantastic. I do, do really love them. I, the reason I love them rather than like them is because you focus on the, the experience perspective, which is, a passion of mine, I know it is of yours. Um, so whilst we're all in the technology space, it's really, really about outcomes and what people get from it. So that that's particularly why I, I tuned into it and, and really loved it. There's a personal yeah, side cool. of it too. Yeah, as we're talking now, you know, I haven't even got around to technology as such, but yeah, good stuff. I loved yours as well. Like the ones that I listened to with, there was the Herman Miller guy. I thought that one was really interesting. Yeah, Nathan. And yeah. the hipsters. <laughs> <laughs> It's like they are winning or something. That was really cool too. I thought both of those were really good. And I was kind of like in my head having I was part of the conversation. So I was like trying to join in at different points and then realizing, oh, it's a podcast one-way medium. It's a great way. I think it's a great way of getting, uh, getting, getting a conversation going and a different way to reach your audience as well. Hopefully a bit more interesting as well if you can kind of combine it with a bit of fun and uh, you know a bit of background to it as well a bit of personality I guess um, yeah I, I love this medium so it works for me yeah um I'm, I listened to a great podcast recently called the science of success and it was an interview with an author who talked about a superpower that you probably already have and aren't harnessing and then went on to describe curiosity as a superpower and I just just it, it just kind of stopped me in my tracks and I thought you know doing all of this user experience design and user-centric technology that's what we do We're, we have to keep asking questions and we have to keep stay curious about what who is the user what do they want to be able to do what pain points do we solve for them um, how do we take friction out of their technology and and it just spoke to me in terms of sales as well because when you're in sales and if you're good at that, you're asking more questions um, of the person rather than kind of pitching. That's that's a fantastic, um, kind of fantastic line, curiosity is a superpower. Um, yeah. So so like you maybe, I, I, I come, uh, a lot of my kind of career has been spent on the commercial side as well. So that's a key skill, right, that you have when you're kind of interrogating is a bit of a strong word. But when you're having a conversation with a client and you're digging deep to find out their pains and their challenges, that never-ending curiosity piece is really key, isn't it? And I love that curiosity as a superpower. That absolutely sums it up. Because uh, if you're not asking yeah. that kind of those questions, those deep questions, and being continually curious in life in general, actually, yeah, interesting. Oh, it was uh, yeah, and and I guess like it's I'm always looking for where I can learn things, and sometimes it is a podcast, but then sometimes that says something to you that then um, you pick up in other people. So where I spend time with my five-year-old who is insanely curious about everything. And I am like, yeah, I, I love that she's, you know, that this is like a, a human trait that we have from a young age, this yeah. curiosity. Yeah, and kids and are I, great. They're a great audience to try it out on, aren't they? Because they just don't, <laughs> they just, they're not afraid of asking those questions. They just go for it. And you think if you can handle a, a five-year-old child, um, actually, that's not a bad way to start really, is it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, another great podcast I listened to recently, I re-listened to it. Um, it was the Master of Scale podcast, you know, Reid Hoffman, um, founder of LinkedIn. Yep. He he has this great podcast called Masters of Scale and he interviewed the Airbnb founder. And what 
one of the exercises that they did at Airbnb was to go through the user experience of the whole um, kind of what does a six-star experience look like? What does a seven-star experience look like? What does an 11-star experience look like? And they did this whole workshopping exercise to really understand like what the experience of going on holidays and standing in a ra- staying in a random place should be for anyone and then right. tried to kind of make that scalable for people and it was just an excellent interview but it was also like oh yeah this is so true like when I got to that Airbnb in Tasmania it had a bottle of wine and it had um, local produce like a cheese platter ready to go and it was just it really was so much better than a hotel experience because it was really customized to us. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was that was a great podcast too. I, I love that. A tech tent is another one I listen to, another BBC one, um, where it's a weekly tech tent uh, discussion on technology, different subject matters, Google and Facebook in the news a lot at the moment. It's all about uh, you know different aspects of that. Really fascinating kind of little snippets of uh, podcasts. So I tune into that regularly for kind of my dose of uh, updated topical subjects around tech. But that's a good one. But Airbnb one sounds good, and that 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 kind of experience that uh, you deliver through that is um, really interesting. There's another client I have that describes it as a Ritz Carlton experience. That whenever you go to their office, you walk away having that wow, that that was a great experience of just going to the office, very memorable, um, you know, very greeted at the door, known as an individual, you know, personalised experience. And I think that's uh, off the same vein actually. Yeah, nice. Um, this is a bit of a random question, but you know, you talk to a lot of people, you read a lot. My question is, what is a recent aha moment that you've had? Um, This is, funny enough, this is going to seem like this is prepared um, for this conversation. But my, in recent times, I've come around to this thinking where we spend a huge amount of time, uh, actually with affronting client engagement, talking about technology and about how things come together and uh, how it all works. And we, we, what we then lose out on is the kind of what's in it for the stakeholder piece, what's in it for the user of that building or that location. We miss out on that. It's almost then has to be shoehorned into a tight timescale through design process. So my kind of aha moment is what if we just deploy a solution, um, you know, work through a tender, whatever we need to do from client perspective, but come up with a solution, engage actually people like yourselves really early so that we don't, we have kind of a really solid platform that we can build from and then be creative yeah. away from that space, right? Rather than think about the technology all the way through the design stages and get to a place where we have to deploy this and start thinking about it. It's way too late. So for me, it's really it's really that really bring that in early. And this applies to all the market sectors that we work in anyway. Uh, and then focus on the great outcomes you can get from that. Because that's, for me, the best value from it. And that kind of links in to my general view about uh, smart buildings in general, actually. How about you? What's your aha uh, moment? I, well, I have to agree with that one because one of the things that we've been, you know, we're really trying to talk about what is it that our technology is for a building and it really is the operating system for a place. And where, you know, where, where we think about buying a laptop, if a laptop shipped without an operating system and some basic applications, you're making the user work so hard just to get you know, if they had to go and load an operating system, then they have to download the applications onto it that they needed, make a bunch of decisions about, you know, what should actually go onto that laptop where things that, you you know, we know that you need things like word processing and maybe PowerPoint and um, maybe some, some notes application and email browser. Those are the things that we know that you need on a laptop. So we're just going to put them in there. But it's a laptop, so with a good operating system, and you can then go and download other applications, or you can build your own applications, or you know, like if if we picked up a laptop without an operating system, it would just be so hard for the user. And yet we do that in the building industry. We give them a building without any operating system. And if I could, yeah, like if I could get people to think about it in terms of like, well, if, if it was a laptop, what would you do? It, you know, I think there might be more aha moments. So that's, I, I like your one. That's a great analogy um, to get people thinking about it in simple terms too, which is another, that's why I'm kind of, my kind of my kind of vision of smart 
um, is that um, you've got to make it simple. You've got to make it uh, easy to understand for a wide range of people because not everyone's a techie. Um, so, yep. uh, yes, anyway, that, that's a great example. And fill the gaps that we know everybody needs. Like we don't have to start with a completely blank canvas. I mean, there's a, there's a certain amount of things that we know are pretty common now. So we can we could shift those with the building and then you could always build it on, on top of there. But anyway, yep. um, <laughs> my big aha moment, I really thought about this one. And I think it was because, so in Australia, when, when COVID hit and then in Sydney, we had a lockdown um, and I got really flat from that. And I've thought that, you know, well, I'm, I'm quite an extrovert. So maybe I'm missing that, you know, energy that you get when you're having in-person conversations and meetings and really kind of, you know, feeling productive and getting through your work. And then I would see these articles on, video conference fatigue and I was like oh maybe that's why I'm feeling flat because I've been on you know 10 video conference meetings today and it's so tiring but um as part of this book that I'm reading with uh the Jacob Morgan book um for the employee experience advantage he really just like it was an aha moment when he says we humans crave experiences like we spend our money on holidays and nice restaurants anything that gets us to that exhilarating conversations or like challenges, you know, like we go, I personally have been skydiving three times, bungee jumping, skiing, snowboarding. That's what I spend my money on. So when the first lockdown happened, the experiences that I was having were really narrowed. And then I was trying to fill those gaps with like new recipes or new activities with the kids or working with new clients and new countries, but I fundamentally lacked the energy from having those experiences. So I really, I, I, it sort of was like, oh, of course, I'm missing out on all of these yeah. experiences that I tend to have. And and this lockdown, you know, definitely hit the... Yeah, it's fascinating. And flat is a good word for it, actually, isn't it? It kind of, because I think, you know, if you're the kind of person that needs to have that one-to-one, that interaction with people almost face-to-face, that's your, your, you know, this this pandemic is hitting you hardest, isn't it? Because there's just so much we can do from, from in our everyday lives. You just give a good example there, and the many different video conference calls a day. But that kind of interaction, particularly from a, you know, when you're meeting a new client, is really quite key, isn't it? it it's not so immersive, obviously, on a, on a video call, but if you're in person, it's um, and you almost need that kind of interaction. I do anyway. I feed from that. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm not so sure I'm going to take up skydiving just yet, but I like your idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm missing those things. I think it was like, you know, I, I don't know where my next holiday is going to be, and I had to cancel a holiday um, where my friends were getting married in Scotland, and that was like... You know, I'm terrible for them, but I felt I felt terrible too because I, I just didn't have those experiences to look forward to. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's a shame as well. No doubt they'll come back again. Hopefully, if they put it off to the next year, perhaps. Yeah, just put it off indefinitely. All right. Okay. Um, but but luckily enough, we had we had time to um, like where we're not in full lockdown at the moment. So yeah, we took them to a nice restaurant last week and tried to make up for it. Oh, cool. Oh, good. Oh, that, that's helped. Yeah, nice one. A bit more of a work question. What are the gaps in the market that you're seeing and how are you trying to close them? Um, so that, uh, that's a really interesting question. So I think that um, the gaps for me are are kind of, um, how to explain myself, so they're kind of lateral thinking opportunities. So for me, I kind of a lot of my life, uh, in previous life, I kind of, um, I've been involved in security and risk management. Um, so I come at Smart from that place, uh, and, and that's one kind of one of the reasons why uh, why I came into Smart. But I'll come on to that later. But really, for me, it's about um, the key thing for me is not being surprised by surprise itself. This was a fantastic phrase that was used at a recent uh, webinar that I was lucky to be involved in uh, or, or listened into. And for me, it's a kind of say, well, we're in this situation we're in. How can we prepare for it in a better way? How can we use all of the information that's flowing us around us to inform us better to not be surprised by surprise itself in the future? So for me, it's, it's, it's that linking together of these previously siloed systems or pockets of information and really giving this kind of holistic, I hate the phrase, but holistic view of risk and how can technology help us manage that in a much better way? So this kind of goes beyond the pandemic and how we're all doing working remotely but more thinking about a risk horizon and how 
dynamic changes in threat can kind of inform us and, and make, help us make better decisions real time. So technology has to play to that. So for me, that's um, a real kind of gap in the market. So it kind of comes along the line of security and safety comes together, for example, in the higher education market, where, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you work those together, you can really manage that, that environment in a much better way. So for me, that's, that's one of the gaps in the market that I'm actively trying to close. And I know it's an obvious one, but for me, it's a key one, really. How about you? Mine would be the UX consultancy and strategy. I still feel like I work with a lot of, so, so when I, by the time I get to, you know, working with an organization, they might've had a strategy, like a technology strategy given to them, but it's very light on the user experience driven. So what I don't think that people do is I don't think they spend enough time on deciding what their user experience is and then engaging with vendors because like, I don't know, I just feel like there's there's a lot of organizations who are sitting back and passively looking at different bits of technology. So they will, they'll say things like, okay, show me your app, show me your sensor platform. What does your um, cameras do? And they're receiving this information as a product and benefit kind of set. All And even the way that the demo is being done, it's all siloed. So you might be able to compare two different sensors because one has a better API or it's PoE instead of battery powered or something like that. But really the user experience hasn't been well enough defined and communicated to the vendors so that they could actually contribute a more um, holistic, which is an unusual word, a a more holistic demo of their solution. So like if I was the CIO of a large organisation and I was going to move into a smart workplace, I'd really want to define that user experience first and then use that framework. I'd actually give it to the vendors and I would ask the salespeople, how does your solution plug into this desired user experience? Yeah. So I don't want to know your whole feature set. I don't need to know the ins and outs of your product. All I need you to answer is how does your solution fit into my overarching solution? And I think that there'd be a lot of efficiencies gained, a lot of, you know, the experience would go up exponentially. And I think that just being able to drive that, um, user experience and, and you could leverage sales reps so much better if you did it that way. I, I, I'm not going to say I agree with 100%. I agree with you 150%. Totally agree because um, <laughs> it, it is um, – and it, this, this is a really, really subtle but important point. So you've got to actually feel it, not just see it, right? So if you're presenting to a group of individuals, it's, it's got to be tangible to them. It's got to mean something. And if you're coming at it from a kind of a product technology perspective, they've got to, first of all, deal with what that is, right? So they're going to understand it before they get to the benefits piece. So it then becomes a quite a, a, it's a lot of friction in that process. So uh, I remember a presentation we gave about a year and a half ago, um, and we gave it to a bunch of senior, senior execs within this client, um, some stakeholders. Not all of them understood what smart buildings uh, were or was. So we took them through a bunch of use cases. Um, and then we actually then, when we got to a particular use case for that part of the audience, we actually got them involved in going to it to experience it through an app experience, through the presentation itself. So they're then, you know, during that meeting, a notification was sent to their individual phones. They then got on and used an app to experience that particular functionality. So, and then we had immediate feedback in the room from the, this group of stakeholders. So was that valuable? Yes or no. And it was a fantastic way of taking them through what it might feel like to actually use that building in the future. Um, and we've deployed that several times since almost kind of gamified cartoony kind of way, but in a me- really meaningful way, it looks and feels like a real app and they're using it on their own device. So as close as you could get to the actual ultimate experience was where we're going. And it took us, a fair bit of time to prepare for that presentation, but we've used it numerous times since. And it's a, a great way of getting stakeholders involved, particularly in those really early discussions. Once you've kind of already formed a bit of a view and understanding of their culture, you can then replay that back through that experience. So I totally agree with you. Absolutely. And and the people in that is a key, right? Like, you know, I, I actually got asked sort of a, a question at an um, AMP Capital Knowledge Series last year, and it was how do you start a conversation about employee experience? And, one, and I actually said, you know, an outside party can really help you. You get the consultant in. And what one of the, the skills of a consultant is to 
understand everybody from the C-suite leadership down to the frontline staff and making it a safe environment for the frontline staff to contribute to the discussion equally, you know, as equally as a um, CIO, CTO, chief of people and culture kind of person. Um, I, I really think that that's key there. Like, you know, just who is the user? What do you need? Yeah. And asking them and making them feel safe that they can actually answer that question for you. Yeah. And, and also, I think setting a scene when you come to that point that no question is a silly question. Ask away, you know, be creative. Oh. And it's kind of having that understanding the persona of the individual and then perhaps you'd be surprised by something they might say and just allow them to you'd be very creative and, and just open it up, really. But that's key. If you, if you really got to have a creative session, if it's locked down and then you, you kind of interview people in separate groups, you do not get that kind of outcome. So that's a, it's a really important, and it's a skill, I think, actually, in getting a group of people together to get them to think about that and open up because not everyone's going to feel free and, you know, particularly on a, on a video call and opening up and telling everyone about their views. Um, I'm worried that it might be a, a, a poor question or yeah, there is no there is no bad question. It's a completely open and, and a creative session. It's such a new area. Like how could you have covered every question that there is to cover? Like there is no stupid questions because we still want to understand what you, you know, from people, what they want to contribute, what they want to understand about this whole process. Like nobody knows everything about smart buildings. So every question is useful yeah. um, in terms of about those answers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. A bit related, but I don't know, this is, it could be turning on toes as well, but just in general, what do you think company execs are completely missing when they're setting out their digital workplace strategy? So I, I think that um, this is, this is kind of many parts to this, this, this question. There are many, many answers to this question. I think, I think generally is the key thing for me is understanding um, the process that's required to deliver a smart building. Because uh, it is a relatively new member of the of the team in terms of construction programs and design programs, so it's really first of all is understanding how it comes together and the requirement to spend a lot more time at the front end of a of a design program, uh, and kind of the roles and responsibilities that need to happen through that. Um, so you know, people like ourselves need to be involved alongside the architect. When the architect's appointed, that's really when we should be there kind of being a custodian of technology at the top table, as it were. Because if you, if we, people like us are deployed too late, then we've got to have this, I call it the Reba River. The Reba River is the, is the uh, Royal Institute of British Architects um, design stages. So if you get, get pointed too late, say three, for example, you know, concept, develop, design, you then got to swim back up the Reba River to understand what the technology solutions are. And on the way, you'll, you get five or six different people with views of what that, what that is before you get to the, the client's view. So, it's really important to be uh, timing is a key and understanding the process around how to do it. I think the other thing is, is, is about, we've already talked about it, and that's stakeholder engagement. Um, and it, as I said, it's really key that that is undertaken right at the start of the project because, you know, it can be disruptive. It can uh, impact time and budget unless you really understand why you're doing it. Um, and through every design of a project, you'll get various opportunities whereby the budget's under stress and then we'll try and value engineer some elements out. But, with smart, you don't really want to value engineer any elements out. So understanding of the budget, why it's appointed, what you're trying to do with it is really key. So that value, if anything, for me is a key area I think that's being missed out. But as projects progress, it's becoming more widely known. But it is impacting the take up of smart because people then see it as disruptive. Um, so I think it's really it's really key for us to promote what we believe is the right way to go about it. Sorry, that was a bit of a long answer, but. Um, that's Getting for me, yeah. Yeah. yeah, could not agree more. And I think that like having your technology people work with your physical space architects to because those workshops that the architects are involved in, where um, you know that they're engaging a whole range of people to try and understand what the vision for the building is. Like, how do you want people to feel? What kind of um, services do you want to deliver? Um, you know, what, who are the people that are a part of this war for talent? Like, why are we doing this in the first place? And those conversations all get sucked up into how the building's going to look and what the fit out's going to be like. And when we come in as technology later on, we've missed that entire conversation where we actually could have done something about that. We, we could have had technology that complements everything that the architects and, 
and and um, the people who are focused on the fit out everything that they're doing we can complement that with technology we don't have to compromise on any part of it yeah um the biggest mistake that i'm seeing from them from company execs in their digital workplace strategy is that they're just leading with technology i think like i, I mentioned before just being so passive in trying to get an understanding of what technology is available rather than kind of saying this is what I want, what part of this can you give me? And and I think another mistake that I'm seeing is that they haven't really engaged with the user group, the broader user group who is going to be using that technology because I think maybe they feel a little bit that their hands are tied, that technology is what it is. There's options for sensors, there's options for Wi-Fi, there's slight differences, and then you've got cost implications. So I'm going to choose that one because it's slightly cheaper, even though it doesn't give me the full functionality. But if you do that in every case across your entire building, so if you you make a decision on price with your Wi-Fi, you make a decision with price for your sensors, for your um, base building systems, for your physical access systems, for your um, calendaring systems. If you're if you're making that decision over and over again, all of a sudden you've got all of these disparate technologies that don't give you anywhere near the user experience that you actually wanted. Um, so you're just being way too passive in just choosing what a vendor is offering you, rather than really defining what a vendor should be giving you. Yes. So I think I'm continuing on that theme. If you're so we, we, we uh, you know, we probably you'll do the same. We develop a use case matrix and understanding of what the user experience is and what technology is required to support that goal and that aim. So it's quite possible through the average project, which might have a life cycle of two to three years, that technology and how you achieve that outcome will change through the process. So there are some elements mm-hmm. of that project you'll have in as, you know, robust infrastructure being one of them. Um, a curious mindset being a really key one, of course. You're constantly challenging how we do it and what the outcomes are. But if you have that mapped out, it could be the technology solution does change through that process. So I think it, it, is, it is key that you do map it out uh, uh, in, that, in that sense. Absolutely. What's the best research you've seen recently? Actually, funnily enough, I, I, I was looking at um, an article in the Sunday Times this weekend, actually, um, and it, it, it talks about it's about a business continuity and a growth angle around COVID. But it, it talks about empathy and compassion crucial in a COVID-19 era. So that's a bit of a grand title. But it, there are two key elements of it that came out from me. And that's one about how wellness um, is absolutely front and center of, a, of, a, of an employer's consideration going forward, or at least should be. Um, because, you know, when, when people ask on a, on, a, on a video call, are you OK? I think there's a genuine, genuine feeling that they're really asking, are you OK, rather than just a pleasantry. So I think that um, having that front and center is really key. And I think it was um, it was the Lloyds Banking Group, I think it was in the UK, that had um, you know, 45,000 uh, of their employees were, were basically working remotely. Um, and so that's quite a shift. But also to support that, they had about 24-7 a helpline effectively where they could get mental health issues or wellness issues whatever they like and then it's kind of setting up every support possible to help with that process so i think that's that's an interesting bit of research and the same article i'm looking at at the moment actually went on to say about um, back to the risk kind of view that i talked about earlier on that 24 percent of businesses surveyed in february were only just developing their first ever business continuity plan in response to covid19 outbreak so that's right at the very you know this happening real time and they're only just thinking about a business continuity plan that helps them through that process so you know, again not be surprised by surprise itself is a key feature so that was an interesting underpinning uh, element um but how how people change the you know, companies change their con- continuity plans going forward 53 percent of them are prioritizing employee health and safety 53 percent. so that that's um i thought that was an interesting piece it's a good article i, I felt anyway but there's a lot's been discussed around about pandemic and and the return to work but that i found was a really a great validating piece so how about you what, what what's been your your uh, latest bit of research that's that struck you well, last year with the AMP Capital Knowledge Series, um, I was part of the panel to discuss some of the research implications. So I had to sort of go deep on what re- what what their research had found, and some of the generational stuff really hold, held up 
um, even through COVID. So looking at, you know, just as a basic overview, you know, boomers um, typically work was life. Um, when the in the in Generation X, they're more after a work-life balance. Millennials or Gen Ys are more after work-life integration. The Zs coming through are more about working as part of your purpose. And then they even talked about Generation Alpha. So where the expectation of Generation Alpha is what they have as toys, right? So Generation Alpha is under five and they've got toys that talk to them and, and do things at the press of a button. Everything is on demand for them. I think my five-year-old didn't even, the first time she watched ABC Kids and an ad came on, she said, you know, when she could talk, what's this? And it dawned on me, she had only watched Netflix before, streaming services. So she didn't know the concept of a TV ad. So this whole kind of generational um, effect on what those demands of the workplace and workplace technology should be. And one of the, the things was like, okay, so buildings last 100 years. That's how they're built. But um, most organisations are sort of planning on changing their tech every 10 years. And that's just not good enough because the tech cycles at the moment, technology is moving so fast that it's more like you need that two-year cycle. You need this modular approach that, you know, if at the end of the two-year cycle that Wi-Fi isn't good enough, then I need to switch it out and put something that's better in there. Um, and I think the research that they did really applies to COVID as well because you can see the differences in that shift because COVID forced that um, digital innovation in companies at a scale that we hadn't seen before. So how different generations reacted to that was very telling. So, you know, you see a lot of Zs and millennials spinning up new businesses in times like this, whereas the boomers and the Xs are trying to find work-life balance in, in, in amongst the chaos where, um, you know, work-life balance can pretty much go out the door when you're pretty much permanently working from home. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I, I have a similar experience, um, not quite Generation Alpha, but my daughter teaches um, six-year-old children, and, and I might have mentioned this before, but she had an IT lesson with her bunch of uh, students, um, and uh, she, uh, was, uh, after a couple of minutes, she thought this would be pretty straightforward. We'd talk about hardware, and then we'd talk about software in a very high level to these six-year-olds. And one of, the, one of the class, little boy, put his hand up and said, Miss, the screen's not working. So she then had to explain to him what a mouse was, what a keyboard was. Um, so because they're used to interacting with a tablet uh, or something like of that nature. Yeah. Right? They're not, the keyboards to them are, are strange things. And mouses, what, what's that all about? So in the, same, in the same context, we also work a lot in the higher education sector. Uh, and whilst I'm not saying it's the same example in that sector, what, I, what I'm saying is their work, their, 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 their experience to university and their buildings do not necessarily represent the office environment that they were about to go into or the technology they might use in that environment. So I think it's, it's the yeah. same kind of discussion. It's got to be fit for purpose. Um, our technology needs to be much more dynamic to support this kind of educational path. Uh, and our buildings need to be fit for purpose in that sense. So again, in current times, the buildings may be a whole lot different. But so I'm mean, really fascinated by that area too, actually. It, are you just, it just dawned on me what happened last night. I was showing something to my daughter on my laptop with my photos application, like showing her an old photo of when the dog was a puppy. And she went to pinch the screen to zoom in on it. There you go. Yeah, wow. Uh, it's it just... It's, it's strange because we're living in it, but things are happening so fast that, of course, the next generation have these, um, you know, exponentially more, they're just, they just expect so much more out of technology off the, you know, out of the box. They shouldn't have to do too much to be able to get these, what they see as these really simple user experiences. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, absolutely. Who do you wish that you could work with more so you could name a client or you could name a partner potentially but someone that you wish you could do more work with so i think i think um my, my rather than name clients or partners in necessarily we're going to group group them if you like so i yes we would like to work, work with more clients and in a sense that 
we've got to work with the right kind of client in our, in our environment in a sense that, you know, for, for deploying a, a smart building solution or technology solution. But partners, as I touched on it earlier on, you you can't go through a project and then bring on a partner for a key fundamental platform, uh, a technology platform as part of the building at a very late stage. You've really got to have those earlier conversations. So I, for me, I would be having partner conversations much earlier, getting the client to think about the fact that we've got this, yes, we've got to have a competitive tender, but we need those the particular types, not all of them, but particular types of platforms, such as yourselves, on board really early because, as I said earlier on, this gives us the opportunity to think about the more creative elements, the outcomes that come from this, rather than worrying about that platform. Because that platform, in its truest sense, should be very a, a very flexible platform that's ready for anything we throw at it. So I think getting an agreement that that's the, the right way I go about it is my view. Uh, and then we, we some other aspects just was continuing the normal way that they would do in an average project. But for me, it's partnerships, key partnerships early on. Um, and as I say, it, it, it would be people like yourselves that we would we want to engage with much earlier. And it's getting the client's mindset shifted to accept that that's the way, uh, the better path. Yeah. Oh, I like that answer. That's a good answer for me. <laughs> <laughs> to that, but it's, it's solidly true. I, re, I really do feel that that's the case because it's quite, it, it's just holds us up at the start of a project to start thinking about, yes, it's really important as master system designers, which we generally call ourselves, it's really important that we understand the whole piece and we really, you know, put forward best of breed solutions for our client. But, you know, having an agreement on certain aspects of that is key early on and, you know, finding the right partner that fits with that particular client, culture, approach, technology, roadmap, et cetera, is really key. So that will be an early engagement piece for me, for, for sure. My answer to that question would have to be the architecture and the fit-out firms. And just generally the... The best projects that I work on is when someone from people and culture is given the same respect as someone from technology. So their voice is equally heard on the technology project. Um, so I I would love to work more with the, I guess, the people side of the business and the ones who are doing the, um, the environmental design, the space design so that we can complement what they're doing rather than, you know, do anything wrong or step on toes or, or introduce something that's, you know, opposing what they're trying to achieve with the whole experience of the space. Yeah. So, so we have the same view on this. I think that, that that's really important. We talked about it earlier on that, that place at the top table, custodian of technology, technology solution all aligns with a really early engagement with uh, with design so that that's the point where we can add most value i think um hopefully yeah it's like repurposing um pts to stand for people technology and space right yes nice one <laughs> um now i have a, I've got, i have a question for you about just studying how you you know oh, i hope you can't hear that in the background but that is my child blowing up That's okay. um, <laughs> oh, the old work from home now you you didn't study organizational psychology and i noticed that you're not a programmer either neither am i so what was it about your studies and experience that brought you to this point as really an expert in smart buildings so I, I kind of touched on it earlier on, but for me, um, so I, I, I've been a, pra a security practitioner for a number of years. So from my, there's two aspects to this. There's partly, I guess, security and security systems, and forgive my my, my colleagues in the industry out there when I say this, but it, it, it is the last bastion of siloness. Security systems, by their very nature, have tended to be very isolated from other building systems, for generally obvious reasons. Um, but what, what uh, sits within those systems is this massive amount of data that we could do something with. Access control, for example, huge database of um, information, you know, with data privacy in mind, of course. But so for me, it was it was partly wanting to do something different. And I didn't feel security market at the time was moving fast enough. I felt that culturally it was still set in the past. And I think there's some fantastic examples of it moving forward now. To me, what I wanted to break out of that. And secondly, is this fascination for simply doing, simply making our lives better, uh, simply improving our everyday lives through technology and through experiences. So, um, and, and that kind of goes back to my earlier commercial days when we, again, we touched on it earlier on, and you wanting to understand what the key key challenges are and pain points to individuals and clients. And 
I just felt the alignment of those two pieces uh, uh, really fitted well with smart buildings. Uh, and it's a, a massively dynamic and, and daily changing, hourly changing industry too. So I like that challenge of change too, change is opportunities. For me, that's how I came about it. Uh, and so, I, so I generally surface my kind of more creative side of my my mind, if you like, to talk about that and making it simplifying it rather than talk just about technology. But so that's how I came came into it. How, how about you? How about yourself? Oh, well, I studied sports science. So I, I had this real understanding of performance and wellness and maximizing human potential. So I did, I, I transitioned from sports science into sports technology. And the t- technology that I started my career with, I think I was 24 or 25 at the time, into a tech career from a, you know, a, being an exercise physiologist. And that was video based. Um, uh, performance analysis, but it wasn't just for athletes. Like we, we did use it for football teams, you know, like every Australian football league team in Australia, um, all 18 of them at the time, were using this particular software. So they were using it for sport, but then I was using the same software in a medical simulation to understand how medical teams work together. And then we were presenting that back as a, a video debrief. Um, and it was there that I met um, Jonathan McFarlane, who's our CEO, and just when he sort of branched off and started his own business, he just kept showing me the tech because there were similarities at the time between what he was um, doing with integration and what I was doing with integration in, in a video-based um, software. But just the human performance aspect, I guess, has always been really interesting for me. So like oh, I worked with this one athlete who just stays in my mind. I was I was a very junior um, kind of like an assistant sports scientist at the time. This guy's name was Shannon Eckstein. He's an iron man in the surf in Australia. And um, he we were testing him on ergometers. So designed for board paddling, these athletes had to get on and paddle on the ergometer until exhaustion pretty much. And this guy went 150% further than his nearest competitor. And this was at a high performance camp where this was the best of the best of the best in Australia, all competing against each other on ergometers to get like their testing. And he was so far ahead of everybody else. And it just, it was so interesting to me what it takes to have that human performance and that it's so much about um the mental capacity and the mental state of someone like if you can give them the right environment to have that ultimate mental state the performance that you can get out of them is so tangible and i just think that's it that applies in workplace as well you give them a really good environment you take the frustrations out of it you make sure that there's that's an an environment technologically culturally beautiful space that can really, you know, drive human performance, then we're going to get amazing business performance as well. So it was kind of like a passion that translated into this space as soon as I knew what this space was. That's fascinating. And I I'm, 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 I'm really fascinated by that kind of um, approach too, whereby at the very limit of human endurance, some people can still go above and beyond. And you think that shouldn't happen. The difference is the mindset, isn't it? That, that That's really yeah yeah fascinating stuff i mean there's a lot of about cycling and, and uh, incremental gains um you know little bits little chipping away bits but when someone's so far ahead you think how do they do that that's really interesting but then by the same thing i you know he, he had blisters on his hands and he just pushed through that so he he found a way to push through that pain but then by the same token i'd been an exercise physiologist at some of you know their largest australian businesses um they, they would come to us for their kind of corporate health checkups. And I was so um, deflated by what I was seeing at the executive level where wellness really wasn't at the time front and centre for them. You know, these it was a lot of, um, you know, 45, 50-year-old men who were very, very, very overweight who had their their schedules filled with meetings and drinks and lunches and dinners and no family time, no downtime. It was just constant, constant work. And 
that was just so, um, it was just in stark contrast to working with athletes where the best teams was, they were always trying to not just get performance out of people, um, which, you know, these businesses were performing well and they were getting really good performances out of these executives. But the athletes also had a wellness focus. So things were taken care of for them. Their mental health was um, served, you know, like people were looking after them, whereas executives at these top businesses really didn't have that same focus. Um, yeah, so it's a holistic thing. It's an all-inclusive approach now, isn't it? And wellness and mental health is just as important as is other areas and other elements I, yeah it's a really interesting point i can see how you came into it that, that i'd be in a similar position i think to want to explore that further and how you could align the two to think two elements of thinking fascinating yeah <laughs> um that is all of the questions that i had for you i think you've given me some really good insights and some really good tips for podcasts so i'm going to definitely <laughs> follow those ones up um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about and maybe even just give us a little bit of information about what PTS does that's a little bit different to other places? Uh, that, yeah, firstly, Landlord, thank you for the invite. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, <laughs> we have a similar view on, on things, so that's that's fantastic to have a you know a peer conversation around that, as it were, um, but fantastic. So um, PTS, um, as you said, we're really kind of technology consultants talking about people, technology and space. But I think for us, what, what I think what our approach is that, um, as I said earlier on, is is this kind of we've been through numerous smart building projects and kind of understand how not to do it through the painful ways of you know, early days of smart. So for us, it's applying the lessons learned really early on so we move quickly through through projects and, you know, and avoid those areas where. Uh, you know, pain could surface. So it's really, again, the human-centered approach is absolutely fundamental to everything that we do. Um, so yeah, totally aligned uh, on that one, on that one, I think. But uh, it's a it's a fascinating industry that we're both in, and um, and constantly challenging and constantly changing. Uh, and I can't think of any other better place to be right now. Same, agree. Cool. <laughs> Brilliant. Good. Thank you so much for your time, Kevin. I will talk to you very soon. Thank you, Adam. Take care. See ya. Bye-bye.